support for Connecticut East this week comes from EastCon for high school completion, English language instruction and employment and job training services. Go to eastcon.org slash get started today. EastCon, you've got this. Nutmeg Pharmacy, fast, friendly, convenient, local, independent pharmacies that are there for you at nutmegpharmacy.com. And Healing Therapies Through Sharing, offering bodywork modalities for those facing the challenges of a cancer diagnosis and treatment at healingtherapiesct.org. It's the end of the year news review. And we're joined by the Connecticut Inside Investigator team as they look back over some of the major stories they covered in 2023. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. It's the final podcast of the year, and we're taking our usual look back over the year's top stories from 2023. It's been another busy news year, and next year 2024 promises to be just as busy as we enter the presidential elections and what that could mean for Connecticut and, of course, the nation. We like to bring back our news partners at this time, and this year it's the turn of the Connecticut Inside Investigator. And I caught up recently with managing editor Connor Dragotis and senior investigative reporter Mark Fitch. To you both, gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Happily. Thank you, Brian. I know that we were hoping to have the other investigative reporter, Trisha Ennis, join us, but sadly, she is not well. So we send our regards to her and we will obviously catch up with her another time. Connor, let's kick off with you, Connecticut Inside Investigator. We spoke to you originally when it all started. It seems like forever ago. I'm sure it probably seems a little (laughs) bit like that to you, but in a good way. Tell us how things have been going. How long have you been going now? Yeah, so we have been in business now for or 19 months. So like you said, in some ways, it feels like it's been 10 years. And other days I wake up and I feel like, holy cow, we really just got this thing started. So it's a really great balance on both of those fronts, though. We're having fun. And obviously, you've expanded as well. I know that Mark was one of the originals with you, obviously, Trisha as well. You've grown that. Just talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you've grown and how, you know, Inside Investigator has gone down with this audience. Yeah. So we have been really fortunate to, you know, have amazing support from the Connecticut community. And as a result, we are not only do we now have three full-time reporters, we have a full-time digital director, we have myself as a managing editor. We're also bringing on another reporter starting in January. And truly, the reason for that is because of that support from the public, not just in terms of financial commitments, but because there are so many people in Connecticut who are sending us tips, who are sending us great information, who are opening their eyes and and looking for partners to help them out in their communities. Man, that's really been one of the most amazing parts of this project so far is just the passion, the attention to detail, the number of people who care and understand that, you know, good journalism can really have a positive impact on their lives. And that's just, man, that warms my heart (laughs) in the holiday season here. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, we're doing our usual, so like end of year thing. Mark, I'm going to turn to you. You've covered huge amounts of stories this year. So to ask you to like to whittle them down is always a difficult one. But I want to kick off with one in particular, a DCF funded shelter for teen girls that uh, loses control. It was something you reported on back in September 10th. Tell us about 
about that one? Why was that such a, an interest? And, and tell us a little bit about the story. Sure. So that story concerns a star home in the small town of Harwinton. Star stands for short-term assessment and respite. And yeah, I had gotten I had gotten a tip from a source that there were a lot of problems going on at that home. And so I sent out a request for documents from the town, got them. And when I saw what was listed, I mean, these this was, you know, the state police and the EMS workers, you know, writing to DCF, you know, writing to anybody who would listen, saying we've got a real problem here. And, you know, when I started seeing that, I was like, oh, man, I was like, this this is not this is not good in any way. I'm fairly I'm fairly familiar with how, you know, difficult group home settings and mental health settings can be, but this this stuff went beyond the pale. And it was happening at such a rapid pace and eating up so much of the town's resources and trying to manage what was going on at this particular home because it seemed like the contractor, which is an organization called the the Bridge Family Center, was not able to manage it. And they could not get their act together enough to the point that DCF finally emptied the house of all but one girl. And then my last story on it, they shut the house down. It's no longer going to be that star home any longer, which I don't know if that's, I, I don't know how to feel about that because I, I still think, you know, these girls need someplace, you know, safe to be housed. And so taking that off line is just kind of trying to make the problem go away without fixing it. There was a hearing before the children's committee about it where DCF was up there for an extended period of time. And pretty much they were the only ones who got spoken to. You know, they were the only ones who were able to testify. It was a only a two-hour hearing, so town officials didn't get up there. The Office of the Child Advocate was there for only five minutes. The rest was mostly focused on DCF, offering their explanations for what was going on. Yeah, so I mean, it was a, it was a big story. It was probably one of our biggest stories this year and, you know, certainly had an impact. And I just don't, to my mind, I don't know if that impact was positive or negative. Looking at your story as well and reading it, I mean, a lot of money was directed to that particular Bridge Family Centre. I'm just reading the report now. It says $5.5 million from Connecticut in 2023, but not all of the funding went towards the shelters. I mean, it, it does beg the question, you know, exactly what did go wrong there. I mean, that's a lot of money even by today's standard. And as you say, I mean, for the centre then just to be to then be closed down and, as you say, where these young ladies then have to go. I mean, it does will beg those bigger questions that we do seem to live in a society now where so much of things that used to be done by the state have been handed over to nonprofits. And that's not to say that that's not necessarily a good thing, but it, it does mm -hmm. seem to beg these questions of who is watching, who is looking after this. And, and that's not just the money aspect. It's like, does the state actually have enough staff within it to be making sure that they're complying with state statutes and all, all and all of that. I'm guessing you know that was was coming out as part of this report, was it? Well, yeah, it's something. It, it's something that the Office of the Child Advocate has brought up before. I mean, DCF was recently released from federal oversight, and the Office of the Child Advocate is saying, well, maybe we need some state oversight over this department because it, combined with some other kind of scathing reports that have come out of the Child Advocate's office regarding DCF, when taken all together. Together, it doesn't look too good for a state department. Now, part of me is like, well, you know what? They're doing a really difficult job. They DCF occupies a territory, you know, a kind of social territory in the state that is extremely difficult. It involves, you know, taking 
you know, assessing, you know, parents who are possibly neglectful or abusive, removing kids from their care or, or trying to keep the kids, keep the families together, dealing with kind of some really horrendous, tragic situations at times. So yeah, do they need, they, of course, everybody always needs to be trying to do a better job. But at the same time, we think there has to be some recognition that the job that they're doing is very difficult. It's it's impossible to police humanity and all the th- horrible things that we do to each other. But when I, I think when the state takes in a child into their care and custody, they have a, an obligation to to do a much better job than what was being done at the Star Home because they're, you know, the girls were subject to not only abuse by each other, but abuse by the staff, uh, sexual assaults, all sorts of things. And then there were just some basic safety concerns. Uh, the girls were allowed to essentially like kind of come and go as they please. And it results in a lot of runaways. And there were some burglaries and things like that. And it really boils down to the question of, you know, is this the best way to care for them? There's no, if there's few rules and no, you know, hardly any consequences, then is that really creating an environment where a child can grow up to become a productive member of society? And it's difficult because, a lot of people are like, why don't you just you know, lock them in there? Well, that's kind of incarceration. You can't really do that either absent a court order. So there were a lot of competing issues here and you know, where, where you have to draw the legal lines in this gray area of trying to essentially heal some of these you know, mortal social and family wounds. Absolutely. I mean, another story, and this sort of like dovetails into another story we're going to talk to you about, which you covered Connecticut's family court system, whether or not it was ignoring abuse. We're talking about, you know, women here in court battles with their ex-husbands over child custody and, and child support payments very much or came off that high profile Jennifer Dulos case. Talk to us about that one, because again, that was another big story for you. And again, we're talking about neglect and abuse here. Yeah. So, I mean, this this was kind of, you know, this was interesting to me when it first came across my desk is, you know, I, I was somebody reached out to me and they're like, we have this whole group of women who, who meet regularly saying that family court system is actually biased against women. And I I mean, that was kind of shocking to me. I, you know, grew up in the 80s when it was kind of like, you know, if you got divorced, mom got the kids and that was kind of it. And that has shifted uh, in recent years. You know, the underlying philosophy in the family court system is, you know, in the best interest of the child. And they basically determine that the best interest of the child is having a relationship with both the father and the mother. And typically, yeah, that's probably the best interest of the the child. However, when the father has been involved in domestic abuse or abuse against the child, appears that the court is often still granting that custody, that visitation under the auspices of this other kind of idea, you know, philosophy that has wormed its way into the family court system, not just in Connecticut, but nationwide, called parental alienation. Basically, parental alienation believes that when the child doesn't want to meet with one of their parents, doesn't want to visit one of the parents, typically you're talking fathers, that it's the result of the custodial parent, the mother, poisoning the child's mind against their father. And it's one of those really slippery ideas where, you know, even in some of the training materials that I viewed, it says, even if the custodial parent doesn't realize they're doing it, well, then they might be doing it worst of all. So once that accusation of parental alienation is lobbed, it's almost impossible for the mother to refute. 
And there's, you know, a small army of court-appointed psychiatrists and guardian ad litem who have been fully trained and versed in parental alienation. And it's essentially used as a kind of cudgel to just shift custody arrangements and possibly put children in harm's way. I mean, this has become a big thing. This is this is not only national, but international. The United Nations recently released a, a massive report on parental alienation, basically calling it a pseudo theory or whatever, you know, is saying that it's basically causing a lot of abuse, damage and you know, death. It's a it's a dangerous thing to use this idea that was put out by a you know a psychologist many years ago in the family court system. It's having devastating effects. So and there there have been changes. There have been changes in Colorado, changes in California, there are changes in Great Britain. It just hasn't come full, you know, full force here to the US yet. But there is a lot of backlash against this idea. And it's something that's, you know, alive and active in Connecticut's court system. I get a lot of tips about family court cases, and they're very difficult to write about and very difficult to act upon. So it's one of those things that just keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And and when I find a story that's interesting or telling enough, I, I do try to do my best to tell it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and again, we'll just mention, you know, the Dulos case, which, you know, garnered national attention when Jennifer Dulos went missing four years ago, and obviously seen by these women as emblematic of the dangers women face when going through a divorce, particularly when their husbands, as we said, have uh, have been abusive. They're uh, very difficult stories uh, to cover, but, uh, is, you know, such important ones to keep in the spotlight. We're just going to shift the emphasis a little bit now to another story, which just has been running so like consistently on and off really for the past couple couple of years, and that's to do with the Connecticut Port Authority and, of course, state pier in New London. We're now finally seeing these uh, wind turbines being shipped out and actually starting to produce energy, of course, off of the Long Island coastline, but still problems really there. I mean, the Connecticut Port Authority is still very much now and again in, in the spotlight. And, of course, a big freedom of information thing that was done by the Connecticut Inside Investigator as well. Tell us a little bit about it. I know Tricia was much more involved in this, but I know that you have had involvement in this story, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been covering the issues of the state here for, you know, since it really started. And yeah, it's in a way, it's been the gift that keeps on giving if you're a reporter, because the escalating price tag, the numerous ethical issues, the protests, I mean, all of it, it's just been when you start thinking about it, it's not the it's not like the biggest project Connecticut's ever undertaken. And, and but man, was it just chock full of problems. And one of the things that I think was, you know, kind of interesting, what I kind of took away from Trisha's when she got these thousands of documents from the Port Authority was just that this was when it was first like pitched to the public. And we got that the original $93 million number, like this is what it's going to cost to redo the pier. And frankly, the politicians didn't even believe it. I think that's fairly evident in the documents that, that Trisha received. 93 million was a preliminary number. And to me, it's just when politicians want to get something done, they're going to skew the numbers. They're going to come out saying something that they are, you know, it might be true right now, but they know it's not going to be true down the line as a way to get the ball rolling. And once the ball is rolling, it's it's worse to, you know, nobody's going to try to really stop it mid-roll. It's like, oh, you've already committed, you know, 93 million. Well, you've already committed 150 million. Well, now you've already, and in you're so far along that you can't stop and reverse course. I mean, this this is getting done now, regardless of how much money it costs. Does it 
look bad at times, sure, but it get, it gets the job done. And it's just it's one of the things that kind of irritates me about politics in general is like just be upfront and honest. You know, if it's going to cost four hundred million dollars, say it's going to cost four hundred million dollars and be done with it, so people can make a, a a real judgment and an assessment. But when you start off like overselling something, and then you have to face all these issues, you know, walking it back and, you know, going back to the the state bond commission repeatedly saying that, well, we're going to need more money. We're going to need more money. This is the last time, but it's actually not the last time we're going to need more money. I just, I don't, I don't understand how that's ever in, uh, in anybody's best interest, including the politicians that support the idea. So, you know, I think in the future, Connecticut really needs to get a better handle on what something is going to cost, the real scope of the project, and then pitch it to the public so they know. And I think we kind of saw this in the recent electric vehicle phase in or gas powered vehicle phase out issue that happened at the Capitol. They start at the finish line and don't recognize that, you know, people are smart enough to say you have to start at the starting line. It's like, oh, we want all electric vehicles. Well, how are you going to get there? We know that you don't have the ability to do that right now. So how are you going to do it? Same thing with the state pier. They're like, wind power. Great. How are you going to get there? And they say, well, it's only going to be 93 million bucks and it is going to happen really fast. And none of that bore out. So, you know, I think it's I think it's incumbent on government to stop trying to sell us rosy pictures and just be upfront and honest. Be asking a bit much. I don't know. (laughs) And of course, the other thing as well is even though sort of like the state pier is now sort of, as we say, helping to produce these wind turbines, other stories are starting to come out of the weeds. Uh, Rhode Island now seems to have sort of like joined the disgruntlement over these wind turbines. So I think it's uh, this story is is far from finished. And of course, the fledgling industry seems to be suffering a little bit itself at the moment. Orsted has, of course, reported that it has, uh, you know, its its own financial concerns about certain projects. And of course, you know, one got cancelled down in Bridgeport, which was fairly significant. So I think it's uh, it's going to be something that we're going to continue to be reporting on throughout 2024 and beyond. I want to very quickly go back to Connor and and say to you, Connor, about you've got a new sort of whistleblower site, which I know that you want to help promote. And, you know, Mark was saying, you know, obviously he gets lots of tips. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So one of the most important things, right, these stories that Mark is talking about, among the many, many others that we put out over this past year, uh, many Many of them come from people speaking up when they see something going wrong that impacts them in their own lives. So in our opinion, whistleblowers need allies. And more importantly, they need allies who are willing to protect their identity, tell their stories, and then partner to ensure that the corruption is ended. And really, that is where Inside Investigator provides value. So I think what's most important for folks to understand, if you are in a company that's doing something wrong, if you are a government employee who is aware of malfeasance, if you are an individual who is having your life impacted by a corrupt action, newsrooms like ours are able to receive and publish audio recordings, video recordings, documents, and other evidence, even if it was obtained illegally. That's really important to understand is that we keep whistleblower identities confidential. They will not be disclosed under the protection of the First Amendment and Connecticut's Reporter's Shield Law because we know corruption can come from the halls of power. People can get themselves in in some really hot water. And we just want folks to know insideinvestigator.org backslash whistleblower is a place to to check out that portal with the expanded ability to upload files and share information in a secure way. We're here to help and try to root out corruption, fulfill our mission as a nonprofit to leave no stone unturned in this work. 
Connor and Mark. It's been great talking to you and uh, thanks ever so much for doing our usual sort of like end of year sort of like podcast as well. Just a few of the stories, a few of the many, many stories that obviously you have covered this year. And uh, as we said, with regards to the whistleblower thing as well, so absolutely essential. And just to reiterate what you were saying, Connor, of course, anybody listening to this, if they've got any concerns whatsoever, there are shield laws in Connecticut, which means that, you know, organizations like us, news organizations are able to protect you if you you know want to give over that information and to anybody who may be listening to this who you know may have a, a tip or a story absolutely do get in contact with your news organizations because you know democracy suffers when they don't have their feet held to the fire sort of thing and it's only organizations like Connecticut Inside Investigator who have that time and those resources without you this sort of stuff is just going to continue to go unreported and obviously that's uh, you know that's not going to help anybody at the end of the day as I said it's been great talking to you sorry it was a bit of a quick one but you know that's how it is on on the podcast it's always great to catch up with you we are so pleased that you are still here you're expanding we look forward to you know reading more of the stories from Connecticut Inside Investigator next year and in the meantime I would just say to you Connor Dragotis and uh, Mark Fitch from Connecticut Inside Investigator thank you and have yourself a good news year in 2024 thank you so much thank you same to you Brian and a reminder if you have a news tip or want to blow the whistle on wrongdoing then you can contact any news agency in the state including Connecticut East this week and know that your information and identity will be kept safe and protected under the state's shield laws. And Inside Investigator's website again if you want to reach out to them is insideinvestigator.org. Connecticut East this week is made possible by EastCon. Want to finish high school? Enroll today in one of EastCon's free high school diploma completion programs offered virtually and in person. Earn your GED, NEDP or credit diploma in as little as six months to a year with small classes and personalized attention. Succeed from registration to graduation with flexible classes that suit your busy lifestyle. Visit eastcon.org slash get started today and take your first steps towards a brighter future. Con. You've got this. Nutmeg Pharmacy, your local independent pharmacy serving Higginham, Moodus, Centerbrook and Taffville, reminding you to get your flu, RSV and COVID vaccines now and protect you and your family. Open seven days a week and with free local delivery. Find your nearest Nutmeg Pharmacy at nutmegpharmacy.com. And Healing Therapies Through Sharing provides oncology massage and other bodywork modalities for those facing the challenges of a cancer diagnosis. Cancer treatments can be brutal. Our professionals can help with hands-on services, support and resources. Cancer doesn't quit and neither do we. Find out more at healingtherapiesct.org. Uh-oh, Brad's buzzed. Oh yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> and now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. The Connecticut Home Care Agency Assisted Living Services headquartered in Cheshire has acquired Day Kimball Homemakers, a non-profit based in the northeast of the state. Homemakers Incorporated is part of Day Kimball Healthcare that provides hospital and medical services to communities in the northeast as well as parts of southern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Mario DeQuilla is the Chief Operating Officer for Assisted Living Services and explained the reason behind the purchase of Homemakers Incorporated. It allows us to provide hourly shift work for seniors in that area, really Tolland, Wyndham County area, that typically we weren't able to recruit nor fulfill staffing needs in that area. So right now it really puts us in a unique position where we can open up, you know, our great senior care in that area. Assisted Living Services is Connecticut's largest family-owned and operated senior care in-home service provider and employs around 700 employees and caregivers with offices and facilities in New Haven and Fairfield counties. Dequilla said the acquisition now gives them the opportunity to strengthen services in this underserved part of Connecticut. We just have the mission to essentially allow seniors live and age in place for as long as possible with that quality family feel that we find it's very important in this industry. It's an intimate type of setting when you're in somebody's home, you're providing care, and they want to ensure that that it's owned by a quality agency. Connecticut East this week asked for an interview with Day Kimball Health, but no one was available. But in a joint statement, Carl Kramer, Chief Executive Officer of Day Kimball Health, said that assisted living services share the same values and commitment to excellence as Day Kimball Homemakers, and that the new partnership was good news for the regional community. As festive as the holidays can be, isolation and loneliness peak at this time of year. Edwin J. Vieira from the Connecticut News Service has this report. A 2022 survey finds 55% of Americans experience increased loneliness and sadness around the holidays. Some reasons for these feelings include not being around loved ones, seasonal depression, and grief. Deb Bibbins with For All Ages says images of togetherness at this time of year play a role in this growing problem. The reality is that these images represent an unachievable possibility of connection for many people, which can lead to feelings of sadness that they won't be able to achieve the level of happiness portrayed, which in turn results in a disinterest in being social and finally results in loneliness. She says reaching out for positive social connections is important. Whether it's calling friends or visiting family, these can have tremendous effects. The benefits include an increased sense of well-being and better health. Other options, like volunteering, can give people a sense of purpose, which can eradicate loneliness, too. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. In the day this week, a North Bramford-based company is seeking to amend its 2022 state approval so it can build a dredge processing facility at a Depot Road salt yard along the Thames River in Montville. The State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP, found discrepancies between a plan it had approved in 2022 and the one submitted to the town for approval in September. The difference is that the plan approved by the state called for dredge materials to be processed on a barge in the Thames River, while the town plan called for the material to be processed on land. Marine Management Materials is working with DEEP to get the permit amended so it can then resubmit a site plan to the town. Property owner Uncasville LLC leases the site to Gateway Montville LLC, which uses it to store and distribute road salt. In September, the two entities authorise Marine Management Materials LLC to submit an application to the town to process dredge materials on a concrete pad at the site, which is the last remnant of the former AES 
US Thames power plant. In the Middletown Press this week, a draft of Connecticut's digital equity plan outlines gaps in internet access and digital literacy based on income, race and locations and proposes long-term, mostly government-funded fixes along with increased awareness of existing resources. The state defines digital equity as a condition in which all individuals and communities have the information technology capacity needed for participation in society, democracy and the economy of the state. The draft plan includes comments from residents about their problems and frustrations with access to equipment and connectivity. Connecticut's Office of Policy and Management, which has been working to map broadband access across the state, found that many urban areas and large portions of rural Connecticut lack reliable service. Residents may email their comments to digitalequity at ct.gov or call the comment line at 860-622-2032. All comments must be received by January 20th for the Commission to consider feedback before finalising the plan by the end of March. And four communities in eastern Connecticut are set to receive $630,000 between them to help with remediation projects after the state released grants totaling $7.2 million recently for the remediation and assessment of blighted properties in nine municipalities across the state. In eastern Connecticut, Griswold will receive $110,000. Lisbon will get $120,000. Putnam will use $200,000 to update and complete the environmental assessment of the former Putnam Foundry site and the John M. Dean Company for future mixed-use housing and commercial space. And Sprague gets $200,000 to conduct additional site investigations of the former paper manufacturing site located in Baltic for future remediation and current waste treatment expansion and other potential uses. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.